Hello and welcome back to Talk Evidence. It's Christmas again and we've got a very special podcast for you today with a very special guest. It's not Father Christmas himself. It is um, Tim Feeney who is joining us from the BMJ's research team who has been heading the selection of uh, Christmas papers for the very special issue that comes out once a year. Hi, Tim. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. We're also joined, as usual, by Juan Franco, Editor-in-Chief of BMJ EBM and also a GP. Hi, everyone. And myself, as always, Helen McDonald. I'm Publication and Content Integrity Editor across BMJ Journals and a Clinical Editor on the BMJ. We've got a really interesting selection of papers for you this year. And I feel like it's kind of reflecting some themes that we've seen through 2022. So we're going to begin with a topical look at some news on the health of footballers as the World Cup has just come to an end. We're going to look at the performance of BMJ's editors at picking papers that are highly cited or perhaps not. And we're also going to look at the performance of AI, artificial intelligence machines versus radiology exam candidates. We're going to zoom to misinformation and a belief that everything causes cancer. And finally, some tips from BMJ statisticians to set the world right before we start 2023. Tim, I'm going to hand over to you to tell us a little bit about this paper on elite footballers and alcohol consumption, two topical themes. Yes, we thought that this was uh, quite a quirky question that would be of interest, particularly this year since the World Cup is happening. Uh, As we speak, I was watching it last night. And so in this study, they basically wanted to see if uh, elite footballers in Sweden, in the Swedish top tier of footballers, which akin to the Premier League, and they looked at footballers to determine if they were at a higher risk of alcohol-related disorders. And they found that overall... They were not, despite the uh, perhaps sometimes you feel that footballers may be more apt to drink and party. And then interestingly, when they looked at age and year of starting in the top tier, they found that more recent footballers were actually had a lower hazard of having alcohol-related disorders. Uh, but that older footballers, uh, people that were previously players, uh, maybe had a higher risk. So what you can kind of piece together, at least what what we thought we saw on this, was that maybe a long time ago, footballers may have been slightly increased risk uh, or had a slightly higher hazard of alcohol-related disorders, but more recently, maybe because of scrutiny or societal changes, that actually that's gone down. And so they're maybe more focused on healthy behaviors that allow them to perform at the top level. We thought it was interesting. It's interesting because maybe people don't necessarily, when they think of football, think of the elite athletes that play football in um, Sweden. But obviously, as EBM nerds, we all know that they have amazing uh, healthcare records and databases of all kinds um, in Sweden. So this is a tremendous study. Tim, you were talking about the you know, differences over time. This is hugely long, isn't it? Tell us when it started and when it ended. I mean, it's just massive sort of like a whole generate multiple generations of footballers yeah the data spans from 1924 to 2020 so it's a it's a long 
it's a long period of time that we were able to evaluate this. Um, and I think that you're right. That really does, uh, that really is what strengthens this study is that even though, as you mentioned, you wouldn't think of Sweden when you think about football, you do think of Sweden when you think about excellent link data. Excellent link do. data. Um, that, that's what a lot of our listeners, I think, are probably thinking as well. Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it depends on what circles you roll in. Exactly. I mean, we, yeah. we have very cool circles at BMJ. Um, it's just been our statisticians meeting uh, and our research editors meeting, and I loved seeing you all, um, you wonderful humans. Um, let's stick sorry let's stick on the topic of time because Juan another of the interesting things that you picked out about this paper was not just looking at this over multiple generations but actually looking through the duration of the footballers lives so both the time that they were playing football but then after they'd retired and how things changed over that time uh, yes because uh, when people think about footballers especially when they did this analysis about how many scores they they got and uh, how successful they were, and they were unable, perhaps underpowered, uh, to detect uh, whether there was a higher risk for this subpopulation. But people tend to think that perhaps when footballers retire um, in their 40s or perhaps late 30s, uh, their life change, uh, the, the, their life changes, and um, and perhaps uh, that may lead to a higher risk of uh, of, of substance abuse disorder. There, there are famous cases, for example, Maradona from Argentina, that everyone knows that he suffered from several addictions and um, died in 2020. And, um, and, and those cases are known, widely known for the public, and they may think that it, it um, might be um, generalizable to other football players. But this study shows that perhaps the, the healthy habits of, of following the sports may live on. So from elite athletes to elite editors, um, and Juan, you're going to tell us a little bit more about this paper on whether the BMJ's research editors are able to predict which research articles will be highly cited. Tell us about it. So yeah, this this was the research that was baked at home at the BMJ. So baked at uh, home, like a mince <laughs> yeah. pie. A group of editors took the research papers from 2015, 2016, and including those accepted and rejected from the BMJ, and they analyzed their this, their what, what were they feeling their feelings about them in their manuscript meetings. So the BMJ editors meet uh, weekly and discuss the papers and then they decide whether to accept and reject. But at that stage, sometimes we discuss about our enthusiasm on how well the uptake of the article would be, right? If they're going to be um, changing practice, if they're going to be cited, if they're going to influence guidelines. And um, and, the, and this paper looked, uh, followed, follow up on the data on these manuscripts, whether accepted or rejected, and what they found is that nine out of ten editors were unable to identify the correct citation category of papers. That means that most editors said that papers were going to be less cited than they were actually were. So, um, in general, th there was this misclassifications, and editors were not able to predict which articles were going to be like the big hits. So we're basically pessimistic. 
Exactly. That's where and I think researchers would probably tell us that, wouldn't they? They they repeatedly <laughs> underline the importance of their work, and we continue to reject their work. <laughs> well, the rejection letter says BMJ accepts less than five percent of all submitted manuscripts. <laughs> it's, it's it's quite a town. Tim, you've been very quiet, and in fact, you are one of these editors, although we should say you were not one of the ones that were studied because you weren't here in 20, 2015, 2016 when these uh, data were gathered, but but give us your perspective on it. Yeah, I like to think that I would have been an outlier, but uh, maybe That not. one, that one yeah. out of the 10 that actually was good. <laughs> yeah, I think, um, you know, I find this, it's a fun read, and it's, um, as an editor, it's fun to get a self-evaluation about how we are at this. But I will say that um, since well, before joining as an editor, I thought that um, impact factor probably was something that weighed on the minds of research editors. But actually, since I've joined, it's not something we really take into account. So it doesn't really bother me that we weren't able to predict citations because it's not something that really um, weighs on us as we're trying to decide which papers to take. Uh, we think about how rigorous it is and whether or not it's adding something to um, the literature and whether or not we think it's actually going to help clinicians. You know, we have a specific um, goal in mind, particularly at the BMJ. And, you know, citations are one aspect of a myriad of things we're concerned about. Mm -hmm. So we were talking earlier and, you know, what if a paper is not cited a lot, but physicians still find it useful, then it still made an impact, but that's not measured anyway. Um, and that's an and interesting so just, point, isn't it? Because there's so many different ways that you could measure the impact of a paper. But actually, the impact factor is very measurable, whereas some of those other measures about whether it changed practice, whether that's your personal practice or whether it changed policy and in influenced things by guidelines. A lot of that impact is very hard to measure. Um, and it's in it'd be interesting to know um, if the research editors are any better at predicting those things, if if we ever end up with good ways to to measure broader impact, yeah, um, it's it's true. There's many ways to measure impact, and citations alone don't just don't do it. So we try not to um, let that creep in into our thought process at all. Which you know, so ultimately these results don't worry me that we're not doing a good job. <laughs> Essentially, it's it's more fun to just look at it and say, oh, yeah, we, we really can't really peg it. So we might as well not even try. And I think some of our listeners will enjoy listening to this. They can poke some fun at BMJ's research editors and know that um, maybe in some ways we're not that good at our jobs. We're going to stick with performance related issues. Um, we've talked about the performance of editors. Uh, let's talk about the performance of artificial intelligence. So at least in the UK, we've heard a lot this year about the big shortage of doctors that we have. And with that in mind, perhaps it would be good if some of the roles that doctors do could be enhanced or replaced um, by automation. Is it that much of a jump to ask whether AI systems could be as good as radiologists or at least ask whether they can pass UK radiology exams. Um, Tim, would you tell us a bit more about this paper? Yeah, I think it's really topical now, especially with all the hubbub about chat GPT. Uh, but basically, this was a study looking at um, a very um, frequently used artificial intelligence uh, radiology 
um, application that could read radio radiographs and compared it to physicians that just passed the certification exam for radiologists mm-hmm. and basically compared the scores. And they found that the AI radiologist, even in the case of uh, radiographs that the AI was trained on, is not quite as good as a human radiologist, uh, indicating that there still needs to be a lot of improvement for an AI before it can take over for a physician. And maybe it's it's optimal role right now is augmenting radiologists to help them find um, more subtle findings, or maybe at least raise the profile of some patients to get a deeper look. And we thought this was very um, topical given the concern about AI and where what its role in medicine really is. Yeah, and BMJ's published a few papers on this. I remember Tim, um, I think we published a systematic review not that long ago, looking at AI studies in a, in a different field, um, which which showed that they they really weren't um, quite there yet. So interesting to see um, how how the field's progressing. Juan, what were your thoughts on this one? Well, um, it's interesting to look at the overall picture uh, of this uh, evaluation, but um, I found it interesting when that the performance was quite different and quite limited the way we can compare the performance of AI and radiologists when you break it out by diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And we know that not all radiological diagnoses are similar. And there are, for example, the fracture of the distal phalanx of the big toe. It's just a, di- a completely different diagnosis from, from a, uh, fr- from a fr- femur fracture. And, uh, and I think that we cannot expect the, the performance of AI to be um, the same across all diagnoses or to have the same role. And did it show uh, more hope in some areas? Did you find a... Yeah, so for the main, some of the main areas in which it, it had better performance has to do with um, pulmonary and thoracic uh, diagnosis, uh, which is sometimes a, like the, the most obvious di- diagnosis in itself. So let me let you say that as well. If you, if you it's if if you uh, on the on the contrary, if you look at one of the pictures um, that shows um, a misclassification by AI, it says a uh, normal lateral scapular Y view of a shoulder of a child was misinterpreted as a, a humeral fracture. So that tells you that, and and and, and everyone who's done who's seen radiography from childrens are know that uh, there are quite challenges sometimes to read. So is that the most humorous aspect of this paper for you? <laughs> <laughs> I, I almost said maybe Helen has a bone to pick with the AI. <laughs> okay, we are crashing out of that hilarity from Tim. Um, into something a bit more serious um, to uh, this paper. I was drawn to this paper. Um, Everything Causes Cancer was its title. Um, and I was drawn to it because it's it's the kind of thing which I kind of believe at some level, um, probably because I've got too little filter between my thoughts and what comes out of my mouth. And it's not very Christmassy or funny, but it makes quite a clever point about misconceptions and misinformation. And I think that has been such a pervasive problem across society for the last couple of years um, that this this is worth um, 
sorry, I'll just rephrase that last bit. Um, this feels like one of those Christmas papers that is quite novel or seems quite quirky, but actually gets at something which is quite serious. So it's a cross-sectional study which we've conducted on a variety of online platforms. Some of them um, listeners might recognise. One of them is called Reddit, which upgrades content depending on its use. And there are a few others in Spanish language. Um, and this is the kind of content that gets fed to you on your social media feed. So if, like me, sometimes you sit trawling and you see these kind of bizarre articles that are served to you. I get served quite a lot that are about aliens. I don't know what I must do <laughs> to get that content. And Tim and Juan are nice and quiet. Obviously, they don't get served dodgy content on their social media feeds. It just makes me wonder what else you're looking for. <laughs> that the AI served you that. Yes. Um, Anyway, these authors designed a pop-up survey to appear on these sites and they asked people um, who, were, who were viewing this content about their health beliefs. So they asked them about their thoughts about conventional alternative medicines, about whether they had had COVID-19 vaccinations and their reasons for not undergoing those. They asked them about conspiracy theories, some of which I've never heard of. So I'm obviously not the target um, audience for some of these around things like the world being flat and reptilians. I'd never heard of that one. And then they ask about um, cancer. So they ask about um, risk factors for cancer. So they look at these 11 established things which are linked to cancer. So smoking, alcohol, low levels of physical activity, eating red and processed meat, sunburn as a child, family history of cancer, these kind of established um, factors. And they also ask them questions on risk perception, which which are not established um, causes of cancer. And they classify these as kind of mythical, although I think more accurately, they're non-established causes than necessarily totally fictitious. Um, and these include things like drinking plastic from bottles, eating food containing artificial sweeteners, genetically modified food, use of microwaves, aerosols, mobile phones, cleaning products, this type of thing. Um, and then they ask the participants to agree with a certain number of things. And what they hone in on um, in discussing some of these main results is this statement that almost half of the participants agreed with the statement that it seems like everything causes cancer, which is kind of how I feel a bit of the time when you, um, when you read at least a lot of uh, health research papers. Um, and it kind of does make a serious point that out there in the public, there is difficulty understanding what causes cancer and that actual awareness of um, either um, actual or mythical or unconfirmed cancer causes is quite, is quite low. And they feel the authors that this suggests a connection between digital misinformation and health decisions. Um, and, they, and they suggest that um, education and better scientific literacy um, is needed to um, help build trust and better health communication. Um, so I, I quite like this paper. It, it's kind of, it grows on you slowly. It's not um, as humorous as some of the others. Um, Tim, what did you think of it? Well, I think this is a good opportunity for me to reiterate that Christmas papers are not necessarily um, only interesting when they're funny. I feel like a lot of authors feel like that's the, the main, the gist. And while we enjoy a humorous paper, um, this is an example where making another point and having a quirky question is 
the overriding um, objective here. And so I think we were most interested in this as it pertains to misinformation, uh, particularly because we live in a time uh, where we're still in the pandemic and there's still a lot of questioning about the interventions that work or don't work in terms of that. And we found that both, uh, it was interesting that those that had conspiracy beliefs were more likely to believe in the non-established causes of cancer. But we also found it worrisome that so many people kind of had uh, information overload and they just kind of put their hands up and say, well, I guess everything causes cancer. And so some of those mythical uh, causes, you can understand why you may think that they have caused cancer and there's just no evidence to support that they do yet. But I think that shows that people in the entire community of science communicators and health communicators need to be judicious in what they um, inform the public with so that they don't become overloaded and that they can really focus on addressing the causes of cancer that we know to be established and can be prevented. Um, we don't want it to get lost and we don't want people to kind of throw their hands up and say, well, I guess I can't do anything, so I might as well not try and prevent cancer because there are things you, should, you shouldn't you should smoke, uh, you should limit the amount of alcohol you uh, consume, you should be active and try to maintain a normal body weight, you should use sunscreen when you're out in the sun, those are all things we know you should do. So we don't want, I think it would be a detriment to um, society if we confuse people so much that they can't discern what, what the most important things are to take care of their health are. Um, what were your thoughts? Well, perhaps I'm, um, I was a little bit less concerned because um, we have to acknowledge how much of our lives we live with. Um, um, wrong, uh, perhaps deceptive beliefs of our, our reality, and at the same time, what's the role of uh, the scientific community in feeding into this misinformation? Every every other year, we get a paper that says that e either coffee causes cancer or coffee prevents cancer. So, and all of those si signal goes into the population in different ways, and they see. And they sit on subgroups of people differently. Of course, if you're a coffee lover, you're going to love your, uh, the, the papers that says that it prevents cancer. Uh, but if it causes insomnia, then you said, oh, I can't sleep when I drink coffee. And besides, it causes cancer. So uh, a lot about the attitudes needs to be modulated against. And if, if you think about it, um, the, the people who believed in reptilians still believe that smoking causes cause cancer. And that's reassuring. Perhaps they're not going to stir their food in the microwave while they're cooking, um, but that, I, I consider that like a lesser of two evils. So, so um, I think we should work on the attitudes, basically. This will be our last episode of Talk Evidence before the new year. So for any of you looking for some New Year's resolutions, our final paper from the pick of BMJ's Christmas content is one from our statisticians who have some pointers for you about how to conduct 
and report your work. And we should feel very privileged to have this because quite often we ask them for things like tell us how to do things, write down all of your wisdom so that we can follow it. And they're always very reluctant to do it. So um, it's very exciting to see that they finally decided to gift us with all of their wisdom for Christmas. It's a play. It's a play on the song "The Twelve Days of Christmas," and it's authored by BMJ statisticians. Are there twelve of them, Tim? Do you think they each got one in here? Uh, yeah, some of them more than others, maybe. <laughs> um, statisticians. I love statisticians. I wish I was as careful and as thoughtful as the statisticians. And I, I loved reading some of their phrasing introducing this paper. They say. A small but influential group of individuals with a very shiny nose for detail. That's them, isn't it? That's them. Um, They have a better sense of humor than I thought. (laughs) I know. Seeking all is right rather than all is bright. And emphasizing the no, no, no rather than the ho, ho, ho. We call ourselves statisticians and our core belief is that research articles are for life, not just for Christmas. They put a lot of thought into those words for statisticians, I think. I think they did. Um, So they did make 12 wishes. I don't think we have time to share their 12 wishes with you, but um, I think we can maybe share our highlights highlights from them. So Juan, having read their very careful um, instructions to improve your research going forward, uh, what what did you take home? Well, I like um, to pick up two um one is number four um you have like... to sing it <laughs> on the 12th <laughs> day of christmas uh no <laughs> uh do not dichotomize continuous variables that would make a great cent- tune yeah yeah <laughs> centralized dichotomization you are either, either naughty or nice but you will pop poll if you choose to dichotomize continuous variables and this is something that you hear a lot from statisticians because there are there are many arbitrary decisions as to when you decosomize. Well, just give us an example. Well, for example, if you're doing a logistic regression and you use age as a covariate and uh, you said, uh, well, people who are a certain age over 50 years old on the low of 60 years old and uh, you use that to build the model, then some people say, why didn't you use 59 or 61 as a cutoff point? And, uh, and it creates the idea that those two categories are very different, but one of the categories could include people in, in their 80s and, or in 61, and the other category could include people in their 20s. And so you lose a lot of data, which is another one of the points of what, why um, it says that it uses a statistical power. Um, I'm sure the suggestion will explain this better than me, but I uh, hope that you get the gist. So it, it is something that comes frequently when we ask for a stats report on, on, our, on, on research. Okay, Tim, and give us your give us your first one. I'm going to say um, I really enjoyed the part about your study question and having a well-formed study question. The fundamentals. Just, yeah, oh, yeah. This is not just something that the statisticians worry about. It's something the research editors constantly grapple with. Um, determining what the question is, uh, having the question sharpened to a point where you can answer it sufficiently, and then being consistent with that question, like doing analyses that try to answer the question, not beat around the bush. So that's where I'm going to stake my first flag. I like that. I, I'm going niche on my first one, actually. Uh, I'm going for subgroups. 
on the sixth day of Christmas, quantify differences in subgroup results. So they say here that a common mistake is to conclude that the results from one subgroup are different to the results from another subgroup without actually trying to quantify the difference between those results. And that might lead you to naively conclude that a treatment is beneficial for one subgroup of patients, but not for another. However, the statisticians say that actually when you compare the results between those subgroups, you often find that there are quite wide confidence intervals, which usually suggests that further research is needed before concluding any subgroup effect. So that was a very serious Christmas message. Let's come back to Juan. Have you got a serious or a silly Christmas message for your next one? Uh, yeah, sort of serious, I would say. Um, the number eight, interpret I square and meta regression appropriately. That sounds very this serious. Say it again slowly. <laughs> interpret I squared and meta regression appropriately. Better regression. Meta. So, oh, meta regression. Meta, meta regression. Sorry. And um, so the um, basically there's a, a definition that about I square. So when you're doing a meta analysis, one of the missions of Heterogeneity is I square, and it is usually misinterpreted. And I want to read it from here. It says I square describes the percentage of variability in the in treatment effects estimates that is due to between study heterogeneity rather than chance. So basically, usually researchers try to think about oh how how variable is the result across study, and that's like a, a raw interpretation of I square. But actually, is from the estimate of the meta-analysis, how much is between, because of the between study uh, differences. So is it actually tells you uh, how, how much of the variability across studies is affecting the results of the meta-analysis in a way, which I hope is not a misinterpretation that we could crucify them at this point. But, um, and I really liked it because Richard Riley, which he, probably influenced this uh, sentence. He tweets once um, every month this definition in his Twitter profile. And I always just exactly the same tweet. He just keeps retweeting every month. So I try to put like and retweet when I see that. Oh, well, I think Rich is going to like you today, Juan, for mentioning that one. Um, what, what else have you got for us, Tim? Oh, I'm number two. Um, yeah, I picked the first two, I guess. Uh, focus on estimates, confidence intervals, and clinical relevance. Um, that Just that like doesn't fit with two turtle doves because that's the line from the song, isn't it? Number two is two turtle doves. That's that's a that's lot. That's what they say. It's a very big present. Tell us again. Um, yeah, so uh, I think it's really important that um, in this day and age, that uh, authors move away from null hypothesis significance testing and move more toward uh, estimating effect sizes. Uh, estimating confidence intervals for those effects, and then uh, determining what the clinical relevance of those effects are. I think that's the most important thing. That's the thing that will last. Um, it's very hard to interpret something when you just determine that they're different enough. And uh, saying things like trending towards significance is just the worst. <laughs> so I, I am very much on with the uh, determining your good your best question what you're trying to estimate and then um, estimating and getting confidence intervals so I feel like I overcomplicated it with this my subgroup analysis um, one so I'm I'm returning to safe ground for me 
for for my final choice and actually this was the final the final one of the song on the 12th day of christmas the bmj statistician sent to me advice to use reporting guidelines and avoid overinterpretation um hold on And they include a quotation from Doug Altman, late Doug Altman, who was um, BMJ's chief statistician for a long time, which says, readers should not have to infer what was probably done. They should be told explicitly. Proper methodology should be used and seem to have been used. So this point is about making use of reporting guidelines making use of the checklist of items um, that they tell you you need to report so that your research is communicated clearly and that its results can be clearly put in context so they're not spun, they're not over-interpreted and everyone um, knows what you're talking about. If that feels like it's a bit of a serious issue to finish on, because it is something that I feel quite passionately about, you could revisit some of our Christmas content from a different year. And Tim pointed out, we had a very funny paper last year from a researcher who wrote a fake reporting guideline called Bogus. It's sort of an anti-reporting guideline, tells you all the things that you shouldn't do and is probably very contrary to everything that's contained in the 12 days of Christmas from our statisticians. So that's all, folks. Uh, goodbye to 2022. Um, thank you to Tim for joining us. We'll see you next year, perhaps, for the 2023 instalment of Christmas Papers. And Juan, I'll see you in a few weeks with Joe to get back to our regular recording of Talk Evidence, where we'll be discussing the best new evidence and perhaps some more of your evidence challenges um, faced by our listeners. Until then, it's goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. Bye from me, too. Thanks for having me. So Merry Christmas or Happy Holidays, and we'll see you in the new year.